That's God's word. You may be seated. Well, uh, it's great to see you and good to be back in the Gospel of Mark. Um, If you were with us last week, you uh, know just what a great Sunday uh, we had celebrating Easter. And um, the the sermon, if you weren't here, every word of it was scripture, uh, which basically means that this sermon will be worse. Okay? I I can't do that every week, all right? Uh, It would be fun. But I just, I just can't. And so uh, I, I'm going to try to not, I, I don't ever want to share my opinions or here's the latest thing I thought. But I do want to teach the authority of God's word with conviction and passion and help us understand uh, what God wants us to do. So if you're new, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We started it uh, back kind of uh, early February. So we're just kind of right at the beginning still. And that will take us through most of the, the rest of the year as we kind of just take a chunk at a time. And uh, to remind you, Mark is an eyewitness-driven account. It's the shortest of the four Gospels. Uh, Mark isn't a disciple of Jesus, but he was closely associated with people who were. Uh, Some people have called this the Gospel of Peter because Peter seems to be Mark's primary source for a lot of the information that happens here. Uh, The beginning of Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God, the inbreaking of God into history is here. It's, it's here now. It's close. Therefore, repent, turn around, and believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin, toward, turn towards me in trust. And then we've begun to just be introduced to who Jesus is, that Jesus has authority, and that when Jesus speaks, people go, man, there's nobody like this. And he has authority not just in his teaching, but in what he does. Well, in the beginning of, of Mark chapter 2, all the way to the section that we uh, just finished reading, we see five encounters with the Pharisees. We were introduced to them a, a number of weeks back. If, if you weren't here, maybe you can go back online and, and listen to some of that sort of history that led to the development of the Pharisees. But the Pharisees, just, just by way of refresher, the Pharisees, that word means the set-apart ones or the separate ones. And that's how the Pharisees saw themselves. They thought if the Lord is ever going to bring his kingdom to its fullness, we have got to separate from culture, get away from kind of Greek-Roman culture, and, and be clean and be pure. And they are constantly frustrated with Jesus. And so in this section, what we just read is the end of of five different encounters that they have with Jesus. Five different moments where they begin to clash with Jesus. Now I think this is pretty interesting because in our culture, in our day, amazingly, as unpopular as the church is, and as unpopular as Christianity is, Jesus remains fairly light. Many people who do not consider themselves Christians and would not want to enter a church go, I think Jesus is a pretty cool guy. You know what? I think actually everybody likes Jesus until you get to know him. And then once you get to know him, you kind of have to decide. But until then, everybody likes him. Maybe you've seen a hat like this that says, Jesus is my homeboy. right? Or maybe you've seen a figurine like this one. And that's kind of the view that a lot of people have. I like Jesus. Jesus seems ready to, you know, I like my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. So it says I'm formal, but I also like to party, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the way that, that people like to sort of fashion the Jesus that they like. Everybody likes Jesus till you get to know him. And once you get to know him and you get to know what he says and what he does, you're forced now to choose, 
And you can't just sort of remain glibly in this, well, I kind of like him. you got to decide, do you love him or do you hate him? And that's one of the things you see throughout this book. People are constantly trying to figure out what he's saying and what he's doing. But once they figure it out, they have to make a choice. And so do you. People say, oh, yeah, I like Jesus. he's, he's, He's cool. Don't know Jesus. And so what we're trying to do as we work through this book, as we look at this section, is help you to get to know what is it that Jesus is really saying about who he is, about what's true in the world, and how will that lead uh, to some important things. So at the end of this particular section, we read it, you can look at it, chapter 3, verse 6. The way this all concludes is at the end of these five encounters, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This means at the end of these encounters, the Pharisees have decided We don't like Jesus. We hate Jesus. We need to destroy. We need to kill Jesus. And amazingly, they are so willing to do this and eager to do this that they counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians were the people who supported Herod, supported Roman culture. The Pharisees so hate Jesus that they are willing to partner with their enemies against a more common enemy, Jesus. It's amazing. And, and not everybody necessarily wants to kill Jesus, but when people hear what Jesus is really claiming, the authority that he really says he has, people are going to go, I don't know if I like this. I don't, I don't know if I want him telling me what to do. I, I don't know if I'm into this. And so it raises the question, this is kind of what this sermon is going to answer, is why do people resist or even dislike Jesus? Why do people resist or even dislike Jesus, like these Pharisees. What was it that these Pharisees saw? What was it that you may see, or that the people around you may see, if they really get to know who Jesus is, that may make them go, I don't want that. I don't like that. And what we're going to see in all three stories is a common thread. That the reason that people dislike Jesus, those who do, is because Jesus keeps claiming to be God, In every one of these stories, he claims to be God, and Jesus keeps challenging our attitudes. He keeps commanding to be God, and he keeps challenging our heart attitudes, challenging our motives, challenging what drives us. And that's the common thread that we're going to see through each of these passages. All right, so there's three little stories, all of them with this common thread. Let's, Let's go into it and see if you can notice the thread. Jesus always claiming to be God and challenging our attitudes. The first story has to do with fasting. Verse 18, uh, we get the background that John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, his disciples practiced fasting, and and the Pharisees practiced fasting. This was a common practice. Uh, If you're not familiar with this idea, fasting is the idea that you would intentionally not eat food. Specifically, to try to separate yourself from kind of worldly desires to try to separate yourself uh, from kind of your own appetites and to say, I'm going to, instead of fasting, I'm going to use that time to pray. I'm going to use that time to get serious about God. And that was a a common practice. Now, this kind of fasting was commanded for the Jews to do once a year. They had to do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees were so serious about it that they did it twice a week. These guys are serious. These guys are committed. Anyone in here, you don't need to raise your hand, anyone in here fast twice a week? 
Probably not. If you do, it might be for medical reasons or you're just better than us. But these guys are serious, right? These Pharisees, these are people serious about trying in their own distorted way to follow God. And so that's the common practice. People look around, they go, man, the, the, the John the Baptist disciples, they're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. And they ask, Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast? What's Jesus' answer? Jesus says this in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. Jesus says, listen, you don't understand. You're fasting in anticipation, in hope that the kingdom of God will break in, that the kingdom of of heaven will begin the party. But listen, the party's already here. I'm the party. I'm the bridegroom, right? And I don't, I've never heard bridegroom except for in the Bible. Everywhere else it's just called groom, right? So Jesus says, I'm the groom. There's a wedding celebration happening because the kingdom of God is at hand, right? They've even begun to see a taste of this. And the story just before this is Jesus is eating and reclining and partying with these tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus says, the reason that my disciples don't fast is because we're at a wedding celebration. And, and just some background here is helpful. Weddings sound really fun in these days as I was looking at some of the, the commentary on background stuff is that uh, it was very common in these days that a wedding celebration, especially for people who were married for the first time, uh, often stretched seven days. It was a big event. It went on and on. There was eating and drinking and dancing and music and celebration. right? And Jesus is saying, can you imagine at a seven-day feast like this, if, if people in the wedding party were going, we're going to abstain. That would be rude. That would be foolish. So Jesus says, my disciples don't fast now because the party is on. Now, the day's coming when they'll fast because the groom will be taken away. And this is actually one of Jesus' first allusions to the fact that he's going to go to the cross. He's aware. I'm going I'm to die. I'm going to be taken away. I'm going to be led away, and they'll fast in that day. They'll grieve in that day. They'll mourn in that day, but in this day, party's on. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus claiming to be God? Because that's what I said, is that each of these stories have with it a thread that Jesus is claiming to be God. Well, the claim here is in the word bridegroom. See, the idea, the only person in the Old Testament that claimed to be a groom for his people was God himself. Let me show you this. This is actually a verse that I, I like to, to um, read to couples at their, uh, when I officiate a wedding and I, and I get to do kind of the, um, the, oh gosh, the rehearsal the night before and we kind of have a chance to talk about here's what's going on, right? And there's this, there's this radiant bride that's walking down the aisle and the groom is happy and excited and sometimes cries and he just, and I, I don't know about you, when I go to a wedding, I like to kind of look at the, look at the bride, look at the groom, look at the bride, look at the groom, look at, right? See their reactions. And then I read this passage and here's what Isaiah says about this. Isaiah says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. 
For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This is just one portion. There's a number of other passages in the Old Testament prophets especially that talk about God being the husband, God being the groom to his people, Israel. That's also why idolatry and sin is called harlotry. It's called prostitution. It's called adultery. Because it's breaking that covenant bond between God, the groom, and his people, the bride. And Jesus is saying, not just the kingdom of heaven is broken in, but he's saying the kingdom of heaven is broken in, and I am here as the groom. I'm God. I'm God. That's what he's saying. This is another staggering claim. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened, right? In the very first story that kicked off uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And they thought, well, no one can forgive sin but God alone. And Jesus is like, yes, that's right. Right? He's doing it again. So he claims to be God as the bridegroom. He also then challenges our attitudes. He, he says, you need to understand something. Something so different, so new is here. You've got to pay attention Look at verse 21. He begins a couple of illustrations here that just talk about something new. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Get what he's saying? So you get a hole in your old jeans. You don't get a patch of new jeans to sew on it. Because if you do that, and the new patch hasn't ever shrunk before, what happens when you sew that on there, and then you run it through the dryer. I don't know if they had dryers in these days, but same thing happened. What happens? The the new piece shrinks, right? And it tears away the fabric. It makes a bigger hole. He tells another example. He says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins or the old wineskins burst. Now, this is one that we got to go, wine, wineskins, what are you talking about? So here's a wineskin. In Jesus' day, I don't think it had that easily pop top uh, lid, um, nozzle. But, uh, but this is the idea of a wineskin. This is a new wineskin. You see, it's made out of leather. And what would happen is that they would put in the juice into a wineskin like this, and through the process of fermenting, a lot of gases would, would emit and would be kind of released within this thing, and it would expand, which is why you needed new, pliable leather. And it would expand, and then eventually it would be wine that you could drink and enjoy. But what would happen is at the end of that process, this this, after having all the gas and all the liquid and all the stuff in there, the, the wineskins would get old and would get brittle and would get shriveled and wrinkled. And if you were to start the process over and the wine were to begin to expand with those gases, what Jesus is saying is it would break, it would break the wineskins. Now, all Jesus is doing here, get this, all he's doing is using examples they would have known of. So you don't do this and you don't do this. What's his point? His point is, You're using fasting to try to gin up the kingdom of God coming, to try to gin up some sort of transformation, to try to gin up some sort of change in you. But there's a whole new thing here. There's there's a whole new cloth. There's whole new wine. Don't, Don't treat the kingdom of God coming in me as just a patch that you sort of just add in. Treat it. This is a whole new paradigm. This is a whole new shift. You're not going to experience the kind of change you want by this rigorous fasting. You're going to have that change from the inside out through embracing me, the real groom of your heart. So he challenges 
their attitude. He says, fasting is fine, but you're trying to get through fasting what you can only get through me. And you can't mix them together. You can't make it work. Second story we see has to do with Sabbath. Now, I just get this, okay? Jesus is talking here about stuff that we don't think about. Can we just acknowledge that? I mean, there's a level of like, how is this relevant to me exactly? Because you're not thinking about fasting unless you have to have blood work done. And you're not really worried about Sabbath, probably, for the most part. But Sabbath is a big deal. Uh, Sabbath is a serious thing. And, and so is fasting in these days. So we've got to do a little bit of work to just kind of try to understand uh, what's going on with this. The people in Israel today actually still think a lot about the Sabbath. Uh, in fact, when you go to Israel, you'll often see um, a picture like this uh, near, near the elevator where it talks about the Sabbath elevator. Uh, the Sabbath elevator is, is basically the idea that on the Sabbath, which begins Friday evening and, and ends Sunday evening, the elevators are programmed to automatically stop at every floor. Why? Because if you press the button that ignited a spark that turned on a light, that would be work. Now get this. The Bible never says that. Okay? But what happened is, the Bible did say, you shall work six days and rest on the seventh. Rest from your working. Why? So that you can have a day to rest, so you can have a day to worship, so that you can trust me that I can do more through your six days than you could do with seven. But out of a desire to go, well, we got to make sure we do this, right? People like the Pharisees and people throughout history have gone, well, we got to extrapolate this, right? If, if, if we can't work our field, then we, then we can't plow. Well, then wait a second, and here was an actual thing. You can't spit in the dirt, because if you spit in the dirt, some of the dirt might move. And that's plowing. Little extreme here, right? And that's the context into which Jesus is encountering these next two stories with the Sabbath. Is high code rules legalism related to the Sabbath. How is Jesus going to claim to be God and challenge their attitudes in this particular story, all right? So here's the story. Jesus is walking through a, a field on the Sabbath with his disciples. Um, they're going through this field. It's not their field, and they're hungry. And they stop to, to, to pick some grain and to eat it and to snack on it. You go, well, that's stealing. That's not their field. That's not their grain. Well, no, you're wrong, because Deuteronomy 23 made provision for this. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 23. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Right? Your neighbor can't come, you know, find you out there one day with your John Deere, like harvesting his wheat, right? Like that's a problem. But if you're walking through and you need a snack, like, hey, you know, have have a bit. There's this is a this this Deuteronomy, this law that's given is designed to be generous and designed to be warm and designed to help you love your neighbor. So you love your neighbor if he's hungry. And he's standing in your field, he has a bit of grain. That's okay, that's allowed. And so that's what they're doing. The issue that these guys have with it is that they're doing it on the Sabbath and they had gone so far as to say, well, it's not just that you can't put a sickle to it, you can't even pick it on the Sabbath. You can't do anything like this on the Sabbath. So they're getting very, very nitpicky. Jesus then says, well, didn't you read the story about David? 
And if you're not familiar with that story, there's a story in, in 1 Samuel where David is on the run. He's got his, his men with him. This is the David who would eventually become king. And they're, they're hungry, they're starving, they're broken down, they're being oppressed, they're being chased. And he stops and he takes the bread that was only to be eaten by the priest and the priest allows him to have it. And Jesus appeals to that. He says, that's the precedent for what I'm doing. Now, there's a claim here that's pretty remarkable, but it gets even bigger. The first claim Jesus makes here is, I'm the new David. Just like David, the anointed one, could get away with that because he was anointed to be king, I'm the new David. Right? This is significant because the Jews were looking for a son of David, a descendant of David, who eventually would be Messiah. But Jesus doesn't just say that. He goes on, and he says something staggering in verse 28. In verse 28, he doesn't just say, I'm the next David. He actually says, I'm the Lord. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He backs it up in verse 27. Said, he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, You want to talk about Sabbath? Let's talk about it. I made it. I made the Sabbath. That's what Lord means. It means master, it means ruler. Why is there a Sabbath? Because Jesus created it. What's he claiming here? He's claiming to be God. Right? To, to say, I have jurisdiction over the Sabbath. First of all, I'm in the line of David. And David got an exemption, and so should I. Second of all, I made it. So he claims to be God. But then third of all, and this, is, this helps us kind of understand this story, and why Jesus isn't actually breaking the Sabbath is he challenges their attitude. Here's the way he challenges it. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What's the point of the Sabbath? It's to rest. It's to remember God. It's to play. It's to enjoy one another and the Lord. Do you think you're able to do that? If you're constantly worried about whether you can spit in the dirt or light a match? No. So in a desire to keep the law, they actually forgot what the whole thing was about. Right? In a desire to be militant about resting, they can't rest. And Jesus says, you have this all backwards. The, son of, the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. This is here to bless you. This is here to be a gift to you. This is here to be good for you. This is not for you to, to, to have it be your master. Because I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, therefore I'm Lord over you. So find your rest in me. It's interesting with the Pharisees. They couldn't rest because they were so worried about kind of you know, doing the right thing. They were so worried about not resting that they never rested. But what about us? This isn't a message about the Sabbath necessarily, but we maybe should reflect on this for a moment. They were so worried about resting they couldn't rest. But we don't experience Sabbath not because we're so worried about resting, because we're so busy, because of our pride, because we got to work, because we got to do, because we got to feel important with all the activities that we have. We got to pack it in and we just can't say no. Right? We, they didn't rest. 
because of their militant law-keeping. We don't rest because of our pride. And so Jesus might need to say to them, listen, don't ex- you don't exist to serve the Sabbath. You exist to serve me. We might need to hear, you exist to serve me, and one of the ways you do that is by resting once a week, by taking a break, by taking a breather, by not being so full of pride that you've got to keep going all the time. Think about this related to sleep. I was reading an article in SI, Sports Illustrated, about um, athlete performance and specifically baseball players over the course of a 162-game schedule. And there's all this research that different teams are doing about how they need their players to sleep more. Because if they sleep more, they'll perform better over the course of a, you know, that long of a season. And in this particular article, it was saying, you know, there's no evolutionary reason why we need to sleep. In fact, it seems to go against the idea of evolution because when you sleep, you're at your most vulnerable, which means you're at your weakest, which means your enemies could attack you. Survival of the fittest, you better not sleep, right? That's kind of the idea. And this article was just in this little paragraph saying, we don't get it. We can't explain. Why, why is there sleep in the world? This makes no sense based off, off of our view of the world. Have you ever thought about why you need to sleep? Why'd God make sleep? He could have made you without it, right? I mean, think about, think about all that you could get done if you never had to sleep. Right? You could spend eight hours a day with your family, eight hours a day working, eight hours a day doing some sort of nonprofit thing that would bless the world. Why did God create sleep? I've shared this before, but I think it's so powerful. I want to share it again. John Piper is a pastor in Minnesota. And here's what he says about this, about why God created sleep. He says this, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, but Israel will, for we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and becomes as lip as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. Every night when you go to bed, you should think to yourself, I'm not God. And the evidence for that is how stinking tired I feel right now. (laughs) But listen, if you need that every day, don't you think it would be good for you to have it every week? For you to take a moment every, every week and go, I'm going to rest today. What are you going to do today? Nothing. And to feel okay with it. It's hard. It'll challenge you. But Jesus says the Sabbath is made for you. So he challenges the Pharisees in one way. He probably challenges us slightly differently. Then we get to the next story, last story. This one's about Sabbath. And this is the one that culminates in the Pharisees deciding they need to kill Jesus. 
verse 1 of chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Think about that for a moment. The the man with the withered hand, he's there. The, the, The word means shriveled or deformed. We don't know exactly what it looked like. Um, but he's there in, in this place on the Sabbath. And the question is, is he a plant? Mark doesn't say, but it kind of makes you wonder. Has he been planted there? Like, hey, let's, let's get this crippled guy in here to see what will Jesus do? Will he heal him? Right? Because their whole thing is, it says, so that they might accuse him. They're like on pins and needles. Maybe he's going to heal him. Because if he heals him, that's work. Boom. Got him. Sabbath breaker. Sinner. Jesus sees into it. Verse 3, he says to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now imagine if you are a man with a withered hand. And most of your life, you're probably trying to kind of make it where that's not so noticeable and you don't like to be in front of people and you've had plenty of people stare and plenty of people gawk and plenty of people look. And the last thing you want to do is be in front of everybody and have attention drawn to you. And that's what Jesus does. Hey, Come here. Let everybody see you. No, that's not very nice. Why would Jesus do that? Well, he's going to make a point. Pretty strong point. Verse 4. And he said to them, again, picture this. Just picture the scene. Picture the drama. This, this man with a withered hand is standing there right in front of everybody. And Jesus says, asks them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What's the Sabbath for? To do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? What should their answer be? To do good. The Sabbath is a picture of rest. The Sabbath is a picture of renewal. The Sabbath is a picture of wholeness and healing and blessing and goodness. Jesus, of course you should heal this guy. That should be the answer. What does it say? But they were silent. It says, Jesus looked around at them with anger. Why? He was grieved at their hardness of heart. He looks around at this this poor man who they're probably just planting there to make a spectacle of him, to embarrass him. And Jesus says, this man that you're using for your religious nonsense Should we do good to him? Oh, that makes Jesus mad. When you avoid loving your neighbor in the name of religion. Sorry, I can't pull over to help that stranded person because i got to get the small group. Gosh, wasn't that music today incredible? Don't cut me off in the parking lot. Right? This is what's going on. They're so into their thing, they neglect neglect the whole point of it. Jesus is furious. Why? Because Jesus says the greatest command is to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you don't love your neighbor, you don't really love God. And it makes Jesus mad. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And what's the result? The result is, wow, Jesus, you did it. 
Oh, that's exactly what the Sabbath is for. The kingdom of God surely is at hand. Wow. Is that the response? No. The response is, we got to kill this guy. Now think about this for a second. Look at the question Jesus asks them. This is so fascinating. What is the question he asks them? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What's that second question about, to save life or kill? This guy's life isn't in danger. No one's threatening to kill this man with the withered hand. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying, you want to have a conversation about what we're going to do on the Sabbath? Okay, let's have it. I'm going to heal this man with a withered hand. I'm going to do good to him. You're going to plot my death. You're willing to break the fourth commandment and the ninth commandment. You're willing to murder and you're willing to bear false witness about it for a twisted version of the the fourth commandment. I don't know. I got my commandments all mixed up there, but you get it? They're willing to break two for a jacked up interpretation of one. Saying, you want to talk about this? This is him confronting the heart. He claims to be God. Stretch out your hand. He speaks the word and it happens. He's got that kind of authority. He's got that kind of restorative power. He is God. But he also challenges their heart and says, don't you love people? And instead of loving this, this man that needs so desperately for people to care for him, you're going to plot to murder me. And you think you're righteous. Now listen, if you don't want there to be a God that's bigger than you and more powerful than you and that can challenge you, if you want to have a nice, tidy, simple little God that you just sort of do your ritual and everything's kosher, if you want that kind of God, then when Jesus shows up, you can't stand it. Why? Because he is Lord of the Sabbath. Because he is the bridegroom. Because he's the one with authority to say, this is what's true in the world. This is the way things really are. This was my big reflection. I didn't plan to say this, but my big reflection after last Sunday and after Easter and after memorizing all that scripture is that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you like it or not, whether you want it or not, it's true. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. And you are in a world, in a culture that says, oh, no, whatever's true for you is true for you. Fine, fine. You're in a a culture that says, oh, you Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. You don't get anything. You don't understand. Fine. But listen, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of Lords. Jesus is King of Kings. And he's coming back. And Jesus is on the right side of history. Jesus is on the right side of history. Are you in with him? And if you're in with him, you're on the right side. But if you want to have some mamby-pamby, can't we all get along? If you want to get super religious and say, I got it all figured out and I know how to slice and dice it and I don't need to care about people, I'm just going to do my religious thing, you won't like Jesus. He's God and he challenges our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for how you bless and encourage and serve us through the person of your son, Jesus. God, we pray that we could see him as he is. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.